The Perils of Pauline, Chapter Eight, by Charles Goddard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Eight, The Cordelieu Reception. Two weeks later, Pauline and Harry were sitting in the library. Through the half-closed blinds, a soft breeze bore to them the fragrance of carnations and roses. For the first few days after their return, Pauline was so thankful they had not lost their lives that she was reconciled to not having found the treasure. But only for the first few days, she was already growing restless. "'You're wasting time, Harry,' she said impatiently. "'I'd rather face anything than be bored to death.' "'Polly, it's got to stop. It isn't safe. It isn't sensible. It isn't even fun any more. Won't you drop the whole freakish thing and marry me?' Harry was holding Pauline by the hand as she drew her dainty way out of the library. In laughing rebellion, she looked over her shoulder and jeered at him. "'Oh, I thought it was I who was going to be afraid,' she said. "'Well, if you aren't, who's going to be?' "'You!' she tittered. He drew her back with a gentle but firm grasp. "'Honestly, Polly, aren't you satisfied yet? Adventure is all right for breakfast or for luncheon once a month, but as a regular unremitting diet, it gets on my nerves.' "'Still thinking of your own perils?' she volleyed. Harry's fine, keen face took on a look of earnest appeal. He let go her hand, but as she started to run up the stairs, he held her with his eyes. "'You dear, silly boy!' she cried, returning a step and clasping him in an impetuous embrace. "'You are the nicest brother in all the world, sometimes. But just now I think that adventure is nicer than brothers or husbands.' I'm having the time of my life, Harry boy, and I'm going on and on and on with it until I've seen all the wild and wicked people and places in the world. Harry caught her hand and smiled down at her in surrender. A ring at the doorbell and the entrance of the maid caused Pauline to flutter up the stairs. They were preparing to attend the Cordelieu's reception that evening to the great Basconelli, whose musical achievements had been equaled only by his social successes during this, his first New York season. Anyway, she twinkled from the top of the stairs, you needn't be frightened for tonight. Nothing so meek and mild as a pianist can hurt you. Harry tossed up his hands in mimic despair and started back to the library. Yes, I know. She is always at home to you, Miss Hamlin. The maid was saying at the door, "'What a privileged person I am!' laughed Lucille Hamlin. She was Pauline's chum-in-chief, a dark, still-tempered girl in perfect contrast to the adventurous Polly. She greeted Harry with the easy grace of old acquaintanceship. "'Still nursing the precious broken heart?' she queried. "'For the love of Michael, me, and humanity,' he pleaded. "'Can't you do something? She won't listen to me. I'm honestly—' Deucedly worried, Lucille. You know very well that nobody could ever do anything with Polly. She always had to have her own way, and that's why you love her, though you don't know it, Harry. Shall I run upstairs, Margaret? She added, turning to the maid. No, you're going to stay here. 
commanded Harry, seizing her hands. You've got to do something with Pauline. You're the only one who can. She wants a new adventure every day and a more dangerous one every time. Talk to her, won't you? Tell her it isn't right for her to risk her life when her life is so precious to so many people. No, wait a minute. Sit down here. I'm not half through yet. He drew her under laughing protest to a seat beside him on the stairs. She realized suddenly how serious he was. She let her hand rest comradely in his pleading grasp. Why, Harry, yes, if it is really dangerous, you know, I'll do anything I can, she said gravely. They did not see the cold, gray face of Raymond Owen appear at the top of the stairs. The face vanished as quickly as it had appeared. In her Bordeaux, Polly was laying out her finery of the evening. There came a soft rap at the door. Come in, she called, and looked up brightly in Owen's furtive eyes as he opened the door and motioned to her. Don't say anything, please, Miss Marvin, he whispered. Just come with me for a moment. Bewildered by his manner, she followed to the top of the stairs. He directed her gaze to the two young people in earnest conversation below. It was a picture that might well have startled a less impetuous heart than Pauline's. Harry's hand still grasped Lucille's, and he was leaning toward her in the eagerness of his appeal. You will? You promise? Lucille, you've made me happy. Pauline heard him say. Through mist-dimmed eyes, dizzily, she saw the two arise. She saw the man she loved clasp Lucille's other hand. She saw the girl who had been her friend and confidant since childhood draw herself away from him with a lingering withdrawal that could mean—ah, what could it not mean? Polly fled to her room. In Owen's subtle secret battle to retain control of the Marvin millions, fate had never so befriended him. None of all the weapons or ruses that he had used to prevent the faithful attachment of Harry and Pauline, was as potent as this little seed of jealousy. Pauline rang for her maid. Tell Miss Hamlin that I am not at home, she said in a voice that started haughtily, but ended in a sob. But, Miss Marvin— Margaret tried to demur. Tell Miss Hamlin that I am not at home, repeated Pauline. Lucille had just started up the stairs— leaving Harry with a sympathetic pat on the shoulder. "'Well, even if I can't do anything with that wild woman—' She laughed back at him. "'You know Pauline bears a charmed life. Nothing has ever happened to her yet. Guardian angels surround her, as well as heroes.' Harry walked into the library. The agitated Margaret met Lucille on the stairs. "'Miss Marvin is—Miss Marvin is not at home,' the girl said, flushing crimson. Lucille paused— dumbfounded. But, Margaret, you know I thought— I really thought she was at home, Miss Hamlin. I hope you won't be offended with me. I insist upon seeing her, cried Lucille. I don't believe you are telling me the truth. I'm going right up to her room. Margaret burst into tears. Lucille quickly reconsidered. Indignation took the place of astonishment. She hurried down the stairs and rushed through the door without waiting for Margaret to open it. Pauline— back in her own room, vented her first rage in tears. With her hot face pressed against the pillow, 
she sobbed out the agony of what she thought her betrayal, her double betrayal, by courtier and comrade at once. But the tears passed. Too vital was the spirit in her, too red flowing in her veins was the blood of fighting ancestors, too strong the fortress of self-command within the blossoming gardens of her youth and beauty for the word surrender ever to come to her mind. True, she had found an adventure that stirred her more deeply than the peril of land or sea or sky could have done. Here was a thrill that had never been listed among her intended tremors. She sent for Owen. Masked as ever in his suave exterior and his manner of mingled obsequiousness and fatherliness, he came instantly. Mr. Owen, have you known... have you known that this was going on? I feel that it is my duty to know what concerns you, even what concerns your happiness, Miss Marvin. He answered. You mean... I mean that I have long had my suspicions. But again, the very perfection of his deceit brought Pauline that feeling that she had had since childhood, that sense of an insidious influence always surrounding her, always menacing, and yet never revealed. This influence, which Owen seemed to embody, was the antagonist of that other mysterious power, so real and yet so inexplicable, that warded and protected her, the spirit of the girl that had stepped from the mummy. But Pauline had seen with her own eyes. She did not need any word of Owen's to convince her of the falsity of her lover. She was quite calm now. She dressed with the utmost care. Margaret, who had seen her in such anger only a short time before, was surprised at her sprightliness and graciousness. A slightly heightened color that only added to the luster of her loveliness was the single sign of her inward thoughts. She summoned her own car and left the house alone. The drawing-room of the Clarence Cordelieu mansion was ablaze with light. There was a little too much light. The Clarence Cordelieu always had a little too much of everything. There was a little too much money. There was a little too much gold-leaf decoration in the drawing-room. A little too much diamond decoration of Mrs. Cordelieu, and, if you were so fastidiously impolite as to say so, a little too much of Mrs. Cordelieu herself. But Mrs. Cordelieu was struggling toward gentility in such an amiable way that better people liked her. The motherliness and sweet sincerity of her, the fact that she loved her frankly illiterate husband and worshipped, almost from afar, her cultured daughters, was the thing that brought her down from the base height of the climbers and lifted her kindly, harmless personality to the high simplicities of the elite. She made the natural mistake that other wealthy mendicants at the outer portals of society have made the mistake of pounding at the gates. Instead of letting the splendor of her charitable gifts, the gracefulness of her simplicity, carry her through, she went in for the gorgeous and the costly. As a sort of crowning glory, she began to take up artists and actors and musicians. 
she gained the good graces of the best of them, and in her kindly innocence she won the worship of the worst. It was thus that she came to the point of holding a reception for Basconelli. Not that anyone had heard anything black, or even shadowy, against Basconelli. He had arrived recently from abroad, his foreign fame preceding him, his prospective conquests of America fulsomely foretold, his low brow decorated in advance with laurel. Mrs. Cordelieu added him to her collection with the swiftness and directness of the entomologist discovering a new bug. She herself loved music, without understanding it very deeply. And Basconelli, whatever might be his other gifts, could summon all the cadences of love from the machines that people call a piano, engine of torture or instrument of joy. For half an hour, Harry paced at the foot of the stairs. I wonder if she's ever coming. He fumed to himself. It takes them so long to do it that they drive you crazy, and when it's done, they're so wonderful that they drive you crazy. Did you, did you wish anything, sir? Asked the butler, entering. No just waiting for miss pauline jenkins just waiting sighed harry why if i may presume to tell you sir miss marvin has gone to the reception said jenkins gone harry cried abruptly hotly then remembered that he was speaking to a servant and swung into the reception room he put on his hat and coat and rang for jenkins again how long ago was it that miss pauline went out almost an hour ago sir Harry slammed his way out of the door. It was not until he was in the car on his way to the Cordelieu's that he began to think, began to think with utterly wrong deductions, as lovers always do. I must have said too much, he told himself. She's crazy about these wild pranks, and she thinks I'm a stupid goody-goody. What a fool I was to try and prevent her. You aren't very nice, Mr. Marvin, to snub my pet musician my very newest pet musician. Mrs. Cordelieu rebuked him as he entered. I didn't mean it. I was wait. Why, my car went to pieces. He explained. Is Pauline here? Here? She is the only person present. Basconelli hasn't spoken a word to anyone else. He won't play anything unless she suggests the subject. I am glad Mr. Owen is here to protect her. From the citalant flimsy mist of women around the piano lucille emerged she came swiftly to harry's side what is the matter she asked what's the matter tell me he replied what did you say to her i didn't see her harry she sent word that she was not at home you don't mean not after you started upstairs yes and she hasn't spoken to me all evening and she left me waiting at home for half an hour it's outrageous Harry strode across the floor just as the music ceased, and Basconelli arose, bowing to the applause of his feminine admirers. May I ask the honor to show you Madame Cortelieu's portrait myself? It is called The Glorification of Imbecility, he said, as he proffered his arm to Pauline. He was a small man, with sharp features shadowed by a mass of flowing, curling hair, the kind of hair that has come to be called musical by the irreverent. The sweep of an abnormal brow gave emphasis to the sudden jut of deep eye-sockets, and a dull, sallow skin gave emphasis 
to the subtle, sinister light of the eyes themselves. Pauline accepted the proffered arm of the artist, but daintily, laughingly, she turned him back to the piano. "'You haven't yet escaped, Signor Bascanelli,' she said. "'We have not yet heard Tivoli, you know.' "'Tivoli!' he cried, with hands upraised in mock disdain. "'Why, I wrote the thing myself. Am I to violate even my own masterpieces?' There was a twitter of mocking protest from the women. Bascanelli began to play again. "'Pauline, may I speak to you? Just a moment?' Harry's vexed voice reached her ear as she stood beside the piano. She turned slowly and looked into his bewildered, angry eyes. "'A little later, possibly,' she answered, and instantly turned back to Bascanelli. From her, no mask of music, no glamour of others' admiration, could hide the predatory obsequiousness of Bascanelli. She was not in the least interested in Bascanelli. She had loathed him from the moment when she had looked down on his little oily curls. But if Bascanelli had been Beelzebub, he would have enjoyed the favor of Pauline that evening, at least after Harry had arrived. The glowing piquant beauty of Pauline enthralled Bascanelli. He had never before seen a woman like her, innocent but astute, daring but demure, brilliant but opalescent. When at last they strolled away together into the conservatory, his drawing-room obsequences became direct declarations of love. Pauline began to be frightened. She fluttered to the door of the conservatory, but there she paused. Voices sounded from the end of a little rose-rimmed alley. They were the voices of Harry and Lucille. Bascanelli was at her side again. "'If I have said anything, done anything to offend,' he said, with affected contrition, "'you will let me make my lowliest apologies, won't you?' Pauline hardly heard him. She was intently listening to the low-pitched voices. "'I—I think I will run back to the others,' she cried suddenly. Bascanelli was left alone. "'I congratulate you, signor, on the success of the evening,' said a voice at his shoulder. "'There are few among the famous who can conquer roaring rooms, as well as auditorium.' The musician turned to face the ingratiating smile of Raymond Owen. "'I thank you, I thank you, sir, but I do not believe you. My conquest has turned to catastrophe. I have lost everything.' "'You mean that you are dissatisfied with the applause?' asked Owen. "'No, no. Applause is nothing from the many. There is always one in the audience to whom he plays from his soul.' "'And that one, to-night?' "'The lovely miss. What now is her name, Marvin? She bewitches me, and she scorns me.' "'Signor Bascanelli, there are other places than drawing-rooms, or even conservatories, in which to capture those—' Who captivate. I do. I quite grasp your meaning, Mr. Owen. He tried to disguise the suspicion under an accentuated accent. I think so, Monsieur Piquois. At the name, Bascanelli turned livid. He made a movement as if he would lunge at the throat of Owen, but his fury withered under the glassy smile. So we met in Paris? Once upon a time, a little incident in the 
Rue Saint-Jean. A young woman was concerned to that incident and was not heard of afterward. And you are trying to blackmail me for the death of Marie de Sartre. Ha! Huh, that is a jest, cried Basconelli. I am trying to do nothing of the kind. I simply reminded you of the little affair. I know as well as you that it was all beautifully cleared up, and a man is still in prison for it. I know you are as safe here as that man is in jail, Signor Basconelli. What are you talking about, then? The little woman who so charmed you here. I remarked merely that those who are captivated can capture. Not in this country, not among the Puritans. One must be good and unhappy. You haven't forgotten your little friends Mario and De Palma and Vittorio. They are all respected residents of New York. We know where they might be found. At the Cagalicis? Precisely. Dining upon the best of spaghetti and the riches of wines, and paying for it at the point of a stiletto. But, ha, you are talking nonsense. We could not find them. They could not find us. We might telephone and try, suggested Owen. Heliachi, you know, is now up to date. He has a telephone. He considers it a sign of respectability. And uh, then, what do you propose? De quoi? I mean, Signor Basconelli. I propose nothing, unless possibly there might be, after the reception, a little motor trip to Chinatown. It might amuse the ladies. You are right. I will invite them all, said Basconelli. And how about calling up Marie at Caliacci's, just as an old friend? It might be best. They moved together down the corridor, and Owen directed their way to a little study secluded from all other apartments of the great house. You seem to be familiar with the home of our gracious hostess, remarked Basconelli. I make it a rule to be familiar with all homes in which Miss Marvin is entertained. Miss Marvin? You are then a relative? I am her guardian. Ah, you have a control, perhaps, of certain small sums bequeathed to her? Yes. And you would like to have as few persons as possible in the Chinatown party? As few as possible. In a place known only as Cagliacci's, in the dreg depths of Elizabeth Street, the ringing of the telephone bell was much more startling, much more unusual than the crash of a pistol shot or the blast of a bomb. The habitues moved quietly to the door that leads to the roofs, while Pietro Cagliacci himself wiped the dust-covered receiver on his apron and put it to his ear. He spoke softly, tersely. The conversation was very brief. Within a minute, after he had hung up the receiver, three grimy-clad, grim-visaged men left the place silently. Harry and Lucille came out of the conservatory. I tell you, there wasn't anything said between us that could have caused it. He was saying. I was fighting the whole thing hard, but I was fighting it like a beggar. I am always a beggar with Pauline. But you told her it wasn't right that she was risking other people's lives? No, I told you to tell her that. In spite of her distress over Pauline's coldness, Lucille burst into laughter. They were just emerging into the music room. Pauline, like the others, turned at the unexpected sound. 
she gave one glance at the two and turned haughtily away. Basconelli was bustling about, making up an impromptu excursion party. Ha! You people of New York, you do not know what is in New York. All Europe is there, and you never cross 14th Street. I mean, to say, Fifth Avenue. It's more dangerous to cross Fifth Avenue than to cross the ocean. That's probably the reason, said Harry. The traffic cops along the Gulf Stream are so careful. Pauline stopped Basconelli's intended reply. She wanted Harry to be ignored utterly. Her anger had made him flippant. His flippancy had put the seal of completeness upon her anger. End of chapter 8 The Cordelieu Reception